Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, July the 18th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan, returning refreshed and delighted from a couple of weeks in the Balkans. Later in today's podcast, uh, political editor Pat Leahy, Martin Wall, our industry correspondent, and health policy analyst Sarah Burke will be joining us to discuss where exactly the post care reform of the Irish health system stands. But first of all, all eyes continue to be on Westminster and the ongoing wrangling over Brexit. I was joined, along with Pat, by our London editor, Dennis Staunton. Dennis, I'm sure this isn't the first time you've been asked this question, but what the hell is going on at Westminster? <laughs> well, rather a lot, as a matter of fact, in that uh, we've had, uh, really since uh, Theresa May uh, appeared to get cabinet unity around this planet checkers for a, what we might call a soft Brexit. Uh, really, once uh, she had her little victory lap over a weekend, about uh, uh, two weeks ago almost now, uh, then things started to fall apart, first with the resignation of David Davis as Brexit Secretary, then Boris Johnson as Foreign Secretary, then something of a revolt uh, among the Brexiteer uh, MPs on her back benches, and they made clear that uh, they had the support of a lot of the conservative activists around the country when they said that they just didn't find this plan acceptable. This was uh, a blueprint for Brexit in name only. And so uh, there were always going to be a couple of important votes this week, one on Monday on uh, a customs bill and another on Tuesday on a trade bill. And uh, until this week, really, we thought that the threat to uh, these bills was going to come from the pro-European side of the Conservative Party, because they had an amendment they wanted to put in which would have kept Britain in a customs union with the European Union after Brexit. What happened instead was that on Monday, the uh, Brexiteers, led by Jacob Rees-Mogg, they tabled four amendments of their own, which were aimed at undermining the Chequers agreement. And so they put certain conditions on these, and one of which was, uh, for example, that uh, there would have to be a separate act of parliament to allow the um, UK to stay in a customs union with the European Union after Brexit. Also, that there could be no border on the, in the Irish Sea. And another which uh, demands that, uh, the, that the UK should have a separate VAT regime to the European Union. And the fourth one was that... Uh, if the uh, UK was to collect tariffs on behalf of the EU, which is part of Theresa May's plan, then uh, this would not be possible unless the EU agreed to collect tariffs on behalf of the UK, which was not part of the plan. So uh, w- uh, faced with uh, very determined Brexiteers, what the government did was that it accepted those referendums and or those amendments and it whipped its own MPs into uh, voting for them. And this, in turn, infuriated the uh, Remainers on the Conservative backbenches. And they uh, said that they felt double-crossed, that she was being bullied by these Brexiteers. And so although they had been thinking of um, holding back on their amendments, in fact, they would uh, propose a few. 
One of them, which nobody really saw coming, was that uh, Britain should remain in the European Medicines Agency. And that one passed narrowly uh, to some surprise, but no great uh, uh, alarm from the government side. But then the big one, which was on uh, the idea that if there was no other deal uh, to keep trade frictionless by next January, that the UK would uh, form a customs union with the European Union. That one narrowly was defeated, and it was defeated with the help of uh, five Labour MPs, well, four Labour MPs and one who's currently suspended for uh, allegations of uh, sexual misconduct. So they uh, so they uh, crossed the floor, they uh, voted with the government, and the government just squeaked through. And, and indeed, and there were extraordinary scenes of negotiations going on, like on the floor of the House with the, um, with, with the pro-European elements to kind of peel a couple of them away, I suppose. Yeah, so there were two kinds of negotiations going on. There was one that literally on the floor in speeches in the House where the, uh, where the minister responsible was saying, look, uh, please uh, take this amendment away. And what we'll do is we'll propose an amendment in the House of Lords, which will ha- include most of the essence of what you're doing, but it won't say a customs union. It will say a customs arrangement. And the uh, uh, Stephen Hammond, who was proposing the amendment, said, well, actually, why don't we do it the other way around? And you accept this amendment and then you can fix it in the Lords. And uh, this was because the, the Remainers don't trust the government to uh, to keep their promises because they already welched on a deal a few weeks ago. Meanwhile, the whips were scurrying around and they were saying to the uh, Remainers and to the rebels, if you do this, if, you, uh, if this goes through, Uh, this amendment. We will pull the entire bill. We won't move the third reading of the bill. And then tomorrow, we will have a confidence vote in the government. And if that fails, you know, if that succeeds, and the government is voted, uh, you know, loses the confidence vote, then uh, in two weeks' time, you could have a general election. Uh, Now, this uh, was regarded as a sort of a terrible threat to make. In fact, it seems to me to be a pretty empty one because all the rebels had to do was to uh, vote with the government in favour of keeping the government. And, uh, you know, there was very little chance that the government would would actually lose a confidence vote. But nonetheless, it seemed to have alarmed uh, some of them. And uh, and so, but it also reinforced this sense that, you know, when the Brexiteers rebel, they get invited around to the whip's office for a cup of tea. But when the Remainers rebel, they, then the thumbscrews are put on. Dennis, it's Pat here. Do you think the Chequers plan is really dead, as the Brexiteers are saying? Or is there some hope in government that it can be kind of resurrected and brought to the talks with the uh, with the Commission? Well, I think uh, it depends really on what you think the Brexit plan was for. I've always uh, regarded it, its purpose as being, I mean, it was quite clear if you look at it, that this idea of uh, being part of the single market for goods and agri-food, but not for services and all these other kind of uh, elements which the uh, EU would regard as cherry-picking, were not going to be accepted by the EU. And the question only really was, was this uh, a proposal serious enough to get negotiations going. So in other words, was it serious enough to get Theresa May onto the dance floor? And then the idea might have been that Michel Barnier would waltz her into the middle of the floor and then we see what happens after that. Now, I think what's the problem now is that although it's probably gotten onto the dance floor insofar as the Europeans have been relatively polite and gentle in their initial response, the Brexiteers are determined not to allow her to dance. And so, uh, you know, once she gets there, uh, this the the normal process of further compromise 
is is being made much more difficult by the fact that uh, you know a number of Brexiteers who have not yet resigned from the government have more or less made it clear to her that if she goes a step further in terms of compromise, that uh, that they will, and any deal that she brings back that was based on the Chequers plan with almost no compromises involved. It's very hard to see how she gets, she finds a majority in the House of Commons to pass a deal like that, because many of the hardcore Brexiteers, certainly I would say a few dozen of them, would vote against uh, such a deal, even if there's no further compromise from the Chequers plan. So she would need support, she would need support from, substantial support from the opposition benches? Exactly. And so then you look at the opposition benches and you can, uh, and really what you're talking about is Labour because uh, the Liberal Democrats want to reverse the referendum. Scottish Nationalists are also not going to cooperate with any deal that she brings back. And Jeremy Corbyn will not uh, be inclined to to vote for any deal that she brings back because he would like a general election. So he would like something that brings down the government and has a new government with him as prime minister. So then you're looking at these, this element of a few dozen hardcore pro-European Labour MPs, people like Chukwu Umuna. Now, what she would have to bring back to satisfy them, now many of those, by the way, are backing a second referendum, and they too would like to reverse the referendum result. But some of those could be persuaded by a really very soft Brexit. And by that, you're talking about uh, a Norway-type deal plus customs union, so that uh, the UK would stay in both the single market fully and in the customs union. But if she goes that far in terms of compromise, then she's going to lose further numbers on the Conservative side. So even relatively soft Brexiteers uh, on the Conservative side would find that too much. So if you try to, to work out the numbers, it's still very hard to see how she can find a sweet spot which will find her a majority in the House of Commons to get something through, just from where we are right now. Right. Uh, Pat, uh, just listening to Dennis there, and it seems apparent to, I think, any of us looking at it, you, you appear not to have a government which can deliver um, in, in a parliament which does not have a settled view on the issue. Um, the government here, you've been reporting, is ramping up its plans for a, a disorderly Brexit, I think, is, is what it's described as. But realistically, um, and it does seem like very possible indeed that we won't have a workable agreement of any sort in time for this March deadline of of next year. There's no way in hell that we're going to see the Irish government putting up porter cabins on the bridge at Pettigo with a man with a peak cap and a biro and a clipboard managing some sort of border frontier, is there? Or for that matter, that the huge amounts of industrial processes, services and the other elements between Britain and the EU are going to come grinding to a halt in March. We're going to end up with some kind of long fingering deferral, it, it, aren't yeah, we? It, it, it seems very Until unlikely we get a that a car crash over the side of the cliff, whatever you want to call mm. it, Brexit would be allowed occur. But then again, if I was to say to you the day after Brexit, that two, day, two years on from this date, the British government would be unable to bring a position to the negotiations as to what it wants, uh, you would have said that that wouldn't happen either. And I think in the sort of febrile and uncertain circumstances that obtain in London at the moment, it's very difficult to say what the 
British government will be in a position to do or not to do uh, in the autumn, not to mind next March after a few months of negotiations with the EU. But you have to assume, I suppose, that states and blocs like the EU will not act to harm themselves dramatically exactly. as uh, yeah. as would be the case with uh, uh, with a car crash Brexit. But I think what you are seeing all over Europe and we'll see it today when Simon Coveney brings proposals to the cabinet meeting in Kerry. We saw it uh, last week when the European Commission warned member states to begin preparations for all outcomes, which is code for a hard Brexit. The preparations are beginning to be made and prudent governments, as Leo Varadkar said yesterday, must prepare for all circumstances. So I think the danger is that you end up with a sort of guns of August scenario in which people are preparing for something and therefore making it more likely to happen. Is there mobilisation of that sort happening in the UK at all, Dennis? I remember a few months ago there was all this discussion about how Boris Johnson felt that they should have been moving more to prepare for this for this no-deal Brexit. They're coming up with, they're, they're going to announce uh, some details of what they're doing uh, shortly, apparently. But uh, but everybody on all sides of the debate, including Brexiteers inside the government and outside it, would say that there hasn't been enough planning done to make uh, the idea of just crashing out of the European Union on, uh, at the end of March a really plausible option. And yet, of course, it's something that could happen. I think you have to look, though, at uh, at just where the negotiations go from here. There are two elements that have to be agreed uh, before the UK leaves. One is the withdrawal agreement, which is a legal text. It's a legally binding uh, agreement. And that uh, includes this business of the Irish border backstop. And what the European Union have said is that if there's no agreement on the backstop, then there is no withdrawal agreement. And if you don't get the withdrawal agreement, then you don't also get the transition period where everything stays the same until uh, the end of 2020. Uh, The backstop remains a big difficulty, although the uh, Europeans have been making noises about uh, softening it. They've certainly been softening their language on it. They're prepared to change the wording of the EU proposal. But, uh, you know, the the fact that Mrs May is in such a difficult and tight political situation probably makes it more difficult for her to compromise on that as well. But so that's anyway uh, one element of it. The other element is a political declaration about the future relationship between the uh, EU and the UK. Now, that Both sides want to be specific and detailed, but because it's not a legal text, there is room for ambiguity within it. And so there is a possibility that you could get agreement somehow on uh, the withdrawal agreement, and then that uh, you get a political declaration which is worded in such a way that most of the hard negotiations about the real future relationship will actually take place during the transition period, so that at least you would have the security of uh, some kind of standstill arrangement. But you know, but even that, to get even what I've just described, which is pretty bare bones, even that is something that it's not, it's not certain from where we are now that you're going to be able to manage. Last word, Pat. I, I think Dennis is absolutely right in, uh, in, in, in his sketching out of what lies ahead there. But what I'm told, both from Dublin and Brussels, is that the withdrawal agreement is, most, is, is, is almost entirely agreed. It has the transition, the, fina- the transition period, financial contributions and so forth. The one outstanding thing that is not agreed is the border backstop, which leaves us in the position where Irish issues are 
the sole outstanding block to or barrier to an agreement in October. And I think you will see that moving centre stage as we go into the the really heated negotiations in, in September and October. Dennis, thanks for joining us today. Now, last week, the government announced that it had appointed Laura McGahey to run the operational plans for Slauncha Care, which is the major new programme planned to revise provision of healthcare in Ireland, changing the relationship between public and private healthcare services, uh, introducing a primary healthcare network and a whole bunch of, of other stuff. However, there is some question about the level of political commitment at government level to Slauncha Care. I was joined by uh, health analyst Sarah Burke of the Centre for Health Policy and Management at Trinity College Dublin. Pat Leahy was remaining with us. But first, I was joined by our industry correspondent, Martin Wall, to ask what was the state of play in terms of the government's plans for Slauncha Care? Uh, well, Hugh, there, this morning, um, uh, the Minister for Health, uh, Simon Harris, will update his cabinet colleagues on the status of the plan. And basically, what will happen is they, the government appointed last week uh, Laura McGahey, who had been involved in a number of uh, significant project managed, management developments over, over many years, to be the executive director of Slauncha Care. And in essence, she will now be mandated to produce an action plan within three months uh, with timelines and goals, etc., as to how this project can be moved along. The problem that I think the critics will point out to is there is still no government decision in relation to the funding of the programme one year, more than a year after it was uh, devised by an all-party committee. And the, the, there, so I think critics will point to that. That issue of funding has now been effectively deferred until the pre-budget estimates process in the autumn is concluded. So we won't know until then as to how much money is going to be um, allocated for Slaunchy Care. And the big issue that is complicating the issue is that there is an increasing worry within government at an escalating budget overrun within the HSE this year anyway. And that is complicating the issue as the HSE is going to need essentially a very, very sizable bailout in the course of, the, of this year. So there's, that will come at a time when the government is also have to, 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 to dig deep to provide funding for Slaunchy Care. Sarah, um, the, the funding that, that uh, Martin refers to then, it's a substantial amount of money, isn't it, as laid out in the plan for fundamentally changing the kind of the structure of the health system as we have it at the moment? Yeah, there's two sort of different budget lines within uh, Slaunch Care. One uh, is called a transition fund, which is a proposal of three billion over six years, although that could be done over a longer time. And that's around addressing some of the core deficiencies in the system at the moment. For example, that would be the absence of electronic patient records, e-health, even when Martin talks about the overspending in the health system, no integrated financial management system. We're still archaic in our financial it's management system. Really, yeah. So yeah. they need to, there's, so a lot of the stuff in storage care is what needs to happen anyway to make a functioning health system. Some of the other transition fund is about training more professionals. We just don't have enough carers, nurses, allied health professionals and doctors. So we need to train them and they take a certain timeline to get into the system. And then there's an additional funding of between four and six hundred million every year for the first six years and then a couple of hundred million each year thereafter. So yes, it is a lot of money. It is a lot of money, but they're currently spending an awful lot of money in the wrong way. And a lot of the key indicators of the system are getting worse, not better, be that trolleys in summertime in emergency departments are the length of time people are waiting for that first appointment with the specialist or for hospital treatment. Pat, I'll come back to Martin in a second, but can I just ask you, in relation to Slauncha Care and, and the whole 
the whole plan itself. I mean, Martin is referring to the fact that we're, we're going to see yet again, obviously, a major overspend in health, uh, nothing new there uh, going by previous years. But that that this particular plan, which as Sarah says, is supposed to be a complete rejig of everything, really, is being viewed through that through that prism. Um, does that bespeak a certain lack of commitment to the to the Sodger Care project, which is an Oireachtas project, isn't that correct to say, as opposed to a yeah, government project? And is that important? Yeah, I, I mean, there is a political wind uh, behind this um, in, in general Oireachtas terms. It was agreed by an all-party Oireachtas committee, though if you talk to individual members of that committee, some of them are less than enthusiastic about access to the plan. But, you know, it was produced and uh, and and accepted by an all-party committee. It was accepted by the Dáil unanimously um, without, uh, without a vote. But there are concerns in government. The major concern, uh, as ever when it comes to health, is, uh, is about money. But there's also concerns about structural aspects of the plan. So the ambition of the plan to completely separate the public and private health systems is something that uh, many people in government either don't think is A, desirable or B, uh, or B feasible. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, those sort of things, though they tend not to talk about them a lot, certainly underpins some of the concerns in government about the plan. But fundamentally, at, a, at an operational level right now, and the thing that is delaying the implementation plan for Slaunter Care, which has been promised for months and months now, is concerns about the cost of it, and, and and that is allied, as Martin says, to the the emerging overspend in the Department of Health for this year, which is likely to run beyond uh, 600 million for the year and possibly more. Yeah, Martin, perhaps what is the what is the projected overrun in total this year in, in health? Well, there are two elements to that. One is the day-to-day overspending, and it's probably at this stage the latest projections indicate that it would be between five and six hundred million, potentially over six hundred million. However, there is another big, significant issue: is that under legislation, the overrun for last year, which was in the HSE about one hundred and forty million, and if you take in the voluntary hospitals as well, in excess of one hundred and sixty million in total, that should have been seen as a first charge on the accounts of the HSE this year in 2018. So they should have started it basically as a minus position of minus 160 million. However, the government took a decision last year um, and told the HSE to draw up its plans for this year and disregard that carryover until there were audited accounts. Basically, that can was kicked down the road. The audited accounts are now in. They're much bigger than the, the, the deficit is much larger than the government had anticipated. And the issue now is how is that going to be accounted for? So that will have to be, unless there's a further exercise in can kicking, that is going to have to be added to the deficit, which means that you could be heading towards a region, a region in total of six, seven hundred million, which would be an astronomical sum. So that is, that is the issue that is being, as I say, being discussed in parallel with the with Simon Harris going to government looking for quite sizable amounts of money, as you say, as, as Sarah said there about the transition fund, in relation for additional investment in Slaunty Care. So that they, they, that is the that is the elephant in the room. That is, and that's quite a large elephant, and getting larger as uh, as as we get into the negotiations on the on the Slaunty Care budget, which is basically, as we say, being deferred now until the autumn. Sarah. 
think it's important to unpick this money issue because at the moment, and certainly the best information we're getting in the public domain in this is from Pat Leahy and Martin Wall on the pages of your newspaper because government or nobody else is telling us anything on it. But there's a few separate issues here. One is the HSE overrun. And that will be there no matter whether Slauncher Care is binned or acted upon, right? So that is one issue to deal with. And that is a government responsibility issue. The HSE has been overrunning practically every year since its formation in twenty in 2005, so 13 years, and the HSE and the Department of Health and Deeper have failed to put in place a system that manages to manage the money they get. So that's one issue. The second issue is the costings within uh, Slauncher Care. And again, there's quite a lot of, and I'm sure Pat's hearing this a lot around the halls of Leinster House, rubbishing of the costings within it. I was part of the team in Trinity that supported the work of the Oireachtas Committee we costed as best we could with bad data the potential costs of what the Oireachtas Committee wanted to do. And there's very strong health warnings within the report around those costings and saying what we need is an implementation plan with much more detailed costings, which it's much easier for the Department of Health or deeper to do than it was for us to do. And then the third issue is how you fund this. And again, the Oireachtas Committee were very clear on this, that this was a political decision. So there was a lot of debate in public and in private at the Oireachtas Committee as to how to fund that. And they decided that that is the determination of government. And all of them signed up to that. So they didn't want to decide, do we tax people more to pay for this? Do we not invest in public housing that is much needed? They said this needs to be a political decision once this plan is out there. And all we need to do is get this plan across the line in terms of political consensus. So in a way, the government is obfuscating on each of its responsibilities on this front. It's obfuscating on managing its current budget, on doing more detailed costings on what actually this plan will need because Slauncher Care was never a detailed plan. It's a high-level political roadmap and those details need to be worked out. And it was never the perfect map. It's a direction of travel that will change as you go along the line. And then critically, they need to decide whether they'll fund it or not. And what they have not done for 14 months is action any of that. Okay, there's an awful lot to unpick there and and, and we will do that. But Martin, first of all, I just want to, because I want to let you go in a minute because you very kindly joined us on your day off, which we always appreciate. But I know nobody uh, in this building who understands the dark arts of of, um, the way... The organs of the state are run, the, the money trail, the, the negotiations that go on to get things done than you. So can you explain to our listeners at all why every year the government allocates a certain amount of money to health and why every year there's such a drastic overrun that if it was a business, it would have been shut down years ago? Well, well Hugh, firstly, there is an overrun most years. There's not an overrun every year. The year before last, the overrun was was tiny. It was, I think, it was between four and ten million. Which the context of a thirteen, fourteen billion euro budget was is is, is minuscule. So it doesn't happen every year. And we also have to bear in mind that when Leo Varadkar was Minister for Health two years ago, he he said that after the years of cutbacks, which there were serious cutbacks, that he had a sustainable budget. So we we have a budget. We inevitably have a supplementary at the other end, at the end of the year. But the problem is, is that it's never still enough. There's always other reasons. Now, last year, for example, or the the the, the, the contributory factors that lead into this. There are a number of issues. There are demand-led issues. We don't know how many people are going to turn up in emergency departments, how many people are going to need hospitalisation. We have an ageing population. They are going to um, require more complex and more expensive treatments. We don't know. You can can 
you can project, but you cannot definitively estimate. The other part, and one of the big issues that happened last year was the government decided, and the government decided last year that it was going to accelerate pay awards for staff in the public service, arising from it was part of the fallout when the government uh, did its deal with the Gardaí to avoid a Garda strike. That cost the HSE, I think it was about 150, 140, 150 million. That was added to the deficit. So some of the problems in the HSE overrun are absolutely caused within the health service, there's no doubt about that, but others are caused within other parts of government or government decisions. Also issues in relation to the state claims agency and settlement of legal cases and whatever else, they also come out of the HSE budget as well. So the, there are a number of contributory factors to, to, to all of that. But as I say, the problem is, and I know we, we say, oh, there's an overrun every year, but we also have to bear in mind that the amount that is being spent every year has increased significantly over the last two to three years since the end of austerity in 2014-2015, both on staffing numbers and on, um, and on spending in general, has increased. Now, the argument, the counter-argument would be is that you are only compensating for years of underinvestment, and we've had we have a boom and bust policy in health going back many, many years, where there's lots of money in some years, then it's cut back significantly in other years, and that, that causes some of the problems as well. But as I say, the situation is, is that there is a financial challenge, a, a very serious financial challenge. Um, there were also in the budget, the, the, in, 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 you know, Michal Martin, the Fianna Fáil health minister, has told it all on many occasions. He has described the health budget every year as being bogus, that it's based on aspirations and based on um, projections that uh, the government internally and the HSE internally know are unlikely to be made. There were savings targets made this year in the budget for this year which haven't materialised. There have been savings targets made in other years that were uh, nobody believed, even from the start of the year, that were going to be met. Well, that's so, no way to do your business, is it? No, uh, but you're into the... You're, you're in, you're, you, you, in drawing up a service plan, the HSE has to draw up a service plan based on the amount of money that is allocated by the government. And sometimes there are things, what we saw this year, uh, where the, the legislative requirement to deal with the deficit from last year was ignored from a, for a, a, under a political directive it was ignored to allow the budget to fit to make the books balance now that's an artificial construct it will fall apart very quickly and it did fall apart and that's what we're seeing so we had that element of it we had savings targets that were never in, in reality going to be made the former head of the hc wrote to the government before the plan was even put in place and said that this these targets won't be made his views were ignored and what he warned of has actually come to pass. So when Michal Martin talks in the Doyle about budgets being bogus, bogus is a strong word to to use, but uh, there certainly is a point to a degree in relation to uh, the credibility of some of the financial projections and financial documents and the service plan provisions that are set out by the HSE on a, on a, um, on a yearly basis. Right, Martin Wilson, we'll let you go. Thanks, thanks again for, your, for joining us. Sarah, listen, listening to Martin here, I mean, it's... I'm kind of, to an extent, I'm kind of flabbergasted by the way that we run health in this country. Although I'm conscious that you know the problems faced by health services internationally, some of them are similar. You refer to demographic changes and aging populations and and those kinds of issues. But isn't the reality that on a per capita basis we spend a lot of money on health and get really bad returns out of the current system? We spend, comparatively, we spend a lot of money and our outcomes are pretty poor. Now, actually, they've got better, uh, particularly in areas like uh, cancer and heart care. 
But I think one of the premises of uh, Sláinte Care and indeed the research project that I work on in college is that if we, it'll, it'll keep on costing a lot of money with bad outcomes if we keep on having the system that we have. And that's why you need this major reform. We have to stop funneling everybody who's sick into hospital. We have to do much more public health. We have to support people access care in primary care to manage their own chronic diseases with many more allied health professionals and specialist nurses. We, there's very good literature. And with all due that, respect to your expertise, people have been saying this for, yes, for but, decades. But what we need to do is do it. And this is the first time there's been a plan to do it. There's a first time that there's a possibility of doing it. Now, I could equally argue that government are pre, doing a pretty good job of sabotaging that first opportunity we've had in the history of our country of this major health Why system. Why do you think that is? What do, you, what, what, what do you think motivates that? Is, to what extent is it ideological or at what extent is it just short-termism, political short-termism? Uh, are well, there a lot of that there, is my sort of big, my bread interests? and butter research, which is what influences major health policy mm. reform and what doesn't. Like, the, and there is good knowledge on this internationally. You do need support from the highest level. So, and you need support from finance. So exactly what is happening now is utterly predictable. You will not have major health system reform unless the Department of Finances and in an Irish context, the Taoiseach are totally behind it. And they're not. Why are they not? You could argue, look, there's an awful lot of other things going on. They're busy with Brexit. There's a housing crisis. Uh, I'm not sure, like, Leo got in and out of health pretty quick without being politically scathed and that he was on the way up when he did it. But I'm, I'm not sure he fully believes in delivering universal health care for the people of Ireland. And a because lot at of the core of Slauncher Care, just from the point of view of our, of our listeners, a, a proper primary network is, is clearly, and proper primary services is clearly part of it, but there is this core element which is getting private medicine out of the public health system well, in order to deliver a universal not. public it's system. It's absolutely not that. The only bit it's specific on is it's getting private health care out of public hospitals. That's the only bit. There will still continue to be a huge number of private providers. Our GPs are private providers. A whole load of our voluntary sector are private providers. People will still continue to have private health insurance and get care in private hospitals. It it, it does want to reduce the number of people with private health insurance, which by international comparison is very high. It's nearly half the population. It wants to bring a system in line with the international norms in every other country in the OECD, apart from the United States, which is certainly where you don't want to emulate in terms of healthcare. So, for example, in, in, say, England, 5 or 10% of the population have private health insurance because the public health system meets most their needs. So it's about providing... So it's not about getting rid of private care, per se. It's about providing universal access to the public health system. And at the moment, you can skip your way in quicker to the public health system uh, if you can afford to pay for it. And that we are a complete outlier in that in, in, internationally. But actually, I, I think that is at the heart of some of the reluctance in government and within Fine Gael, especially uh, towards the plan, is the c- contraction it seeks to uh, to incentivize on private health care, you know, uh, private. Health, I mean, I've always thought it's, it's, it's quite hard to define the middle class in Ireland. But if you were to pick one thing that uh, that that is common amongst the middle class, it's not private education or it's not sailing holidays. It's private health insurance. It's, it's private health insurance. That and, and that is a bedrock of Fine Gael support. And if you introduce a framework over a number of years that makes it more expensive to have private health care, 
then I think you will have that. But are there not two sides? Sorry, 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 but are there there not two sides to that? Surely the proposal is to that private health care, private health insurance will be more expensive, but that there will be a, a health service. Oh, absolutely. Where, yeah, yeah. where I, for example, will be able to say, and I don't need to pay this amount of money to VHI anymore uh, because absolutely, I have absolutely. But there is, but there is a reluctance and a suspicion that actually people will say, oh, it'll certainly become more expensive to become private, to have yeah. private health insurance. But I don't trust them when they say they'll make the public health system better. That's yeah, and they've, oh, and, and they've reasons not to trust politicians yeah. on making the the public health system better. Although some parts of it have improved against the odds. But it's really important to note, and the government needs to lead on this, that actually private health insurance doesn't cover the majority of your costs of private health care. Sure, it doesn't cover true. your GP costs. It doesn't cover your out-of-pocket costs to see a consultant, it doesn't cover your medicines. So actually all it is, is inpatient private hospital care. Hospital care. But what it does do, what the the system of private health care does do, is it enables a certain cohort of doctors, of senior doctors, to be extremely well paid by international standards because they have a private practice and uh, and And a public practice. And therein lies much of the institutional reluctance to reform from within the health system that people tend not to talk about. Medical professions response to these proposals, haven't we? Yes, and some some consultants, although some of them are, most of them are quite silent on it, but uh, some of them have come out. But of course that'll happen. Any type of major health system reform, the people who have something to lose will come out shouting loudest. And in this instance, highly paid consultants are amongst the top uh, of that list. But that doesn't take away from the millions of people who are denied access, and certainly the hundreds of thousands sure. who are denied access to essential care, which in fact is barbaric that people have to wait years for a diagnosis and uh, treatment of uh, chronic or critical healthcare conditions. So what this plan wants to do is provide everybody with that access. And what it needs to do is deliver on that before pulling the rug from other people. So the people need to see that no matter what class you are. And it's not as black and white as you painted, Pat, in that, for example, at the moment, if you don't have a medical card, it's extremely hard to access public health nursing and allied health professionals in the community. And actually, they're key to well-being of all older people. It doesn't matter how much money you have. If you're in Berra Peninsula or West Donegal, you can't pay for that sort of care that you'll get out of the public health system. And that's what everybody could benefit from. But that requires political leadership and courage that has been notably absent. But, I, mean, in I think Pat's point is, is very interesting because we know about... The point I was making is that yeah. this attitude within sure. government, particularly within Fine Gael, is part of the it's reluctance. It's driven by their it. perception I'm, I'm of, the case of, 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 of their voters because isn't it the reality? I think there's a kind of a core political hypocrisy in Ireland or this is this is one of them, which is the people will wring their hands about the health service, but they'll still, once they have their private health insurance, which means that they know if they have a cataract in their eye or they need a, they need to be checked out for a hip replacement, yeah, you, that they child, will jump they will jump a queue yeah, and they're happy to do if that. You, if you have a child with a disability, it doesn't matter how much money you have. Sure. Actually, you probably need to be able to access public health services without charge and in particular social care services. And I sat around the table with all those politicians for six months uh, the year before last and I'd be as cynical as Pat is of of politicians and 
I think each of them wanted to deliver a public health system that was in the public's interest. Yes, they might have different views on how much doctors are paid or the role of private health insurance, but ultimately Sloucher Care is about delivering a system where everybody has access or are not, is not denied access because they don't have money in their pocket. And that does require taking on vested interests. And what's critically missing at the moment is that leadership and courage to do well, that. Well, to come to, just to come back to that and to go back to the, the politics of it then, Pat, I mean, the fact... It, is one of the problems the fact that it, it emerged in this all Oroctus, Oroctus committee kind of way, albeit, you know, lots of work done in advance by people like Sarah. No, and, not and in advance. Co- we were, we were hopefully uh, in, in, in their in, operation. In, you know, during, well, and, well yeah. during the course of it yeah. then. But that, you know, that the natural process by which a political initiative takes place is that a political party or a group of political parties sign up to it and they successfully put it to the electorate. Then they they find themselves in government and they decide to proceed with the uh, with with this thing. And and this comes from a different kind of a place politically. This is in a way a function of uh, Michael O'Regan's beloved new politics. Uh, well, with all it, with, with actually, all its, with all its actually, advantages if you, if you, and shortcomings. If you cast, if you cast, mind, cast your mind uh, back to the period in which the committee was uh, was set up, it was that period between the election of in February 2016 and the formation of a government. So while these interminable negotiations over the formation of government went on, the doll was there with nothing to do. So it set up a couple of committees, this being one of them, to consider uh, consider long-term uh, strategic issues. And that's what gave rise to the, uh, the, the, the formation of the committee in the, fir- uh, in the first place. The, uh, it, it, it wasn't uh, an initiative of government. Government did not come in and put into the programme for government. These are the things we want. These are the things we want to do. Well, exactly. While government was But is that not the problem when we come to this implementation moment that you're going to get foot dragging anyway? But it's going to make the foot dragging worse. But if you read Pat's piece yesterday on water, he was saying eventually after all the difficulties with water policy, the one thing that's going to resolve it is political consensus. That was the underlying, my underlying take. Consensus and compromise. That's right. And that's that's exactly what the Oireachtas Committee uh, on the Future of Healthcare did. And I think they've no choice but to do it. Like they've, they've no other plan. No other party has a health policy. So you either keep on doing what we're doing, which isn't really working for many, many people, is too expensive, is getting them into political holes every single day, or you start doing something radically different. How do you think this is going to pan out? Laura McGahey was appointed last week. Um, she's been sent off to come back with a plan. Um, Pat, that was supposed to happen, I think I'm right in saying a year ago, wasn't it, Sarah? Yeah, the, within Sloan Care, it said that there should be a plan. Within, in, within three three months, there was an uh, yeah, office to now, be set up. Uh, exactly. and now, obviously, so that was ambitious, but yeah, there was yeah, tight yeah. timelines of July yeah. and October. And of last year. Of last year, right? Mm. And then... Harris was saying, Simon Harris was saying, we'd have a plan before Christmas, we'd have a plan before Easter, we'd have a plan before recess. We're in recess, yeah, mm-hmm. summer recess. So we still don't have a plan. But so, we will have a framework, isn't I think that's what will be brought to Cabinet today, that Norma Gahi will be charged with instituting a framework, presumably within which the implementation plan will then This is where people's eyes sit. start to glaze over. Yeah, isn't and it? also yeah. it's and then, of... But, but I think a key thing, and it just key thing that has been decided in the last week, really, because this has been toing and froing behind the scenes between the Department of Finance and the Department of Health for weeks and weeks now. The key thing that was decided this week was that finance dug in its heels and said any extra money 
for Sloan Care will come as part of the budget stroke estimates process in the autumn. So the idea that you have a completely separate fund for the Sloan Care reforms outside of the normal budget process, that for this year is dead. And that is a key defeat, I think. Last yeah, thought I, on this I, for I, I agree. I think the fact that they announced the lead and the chair of the advisory council last week without a plan and without a budget is not a good sign. I don't think it's it, not dead yet, but significant salvaging needs to be done for government to have any credibility with their alleged plan. Sarah Pat and Martin earlier on, thanks for coming in. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our producer, Jennifer Ryan, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. Remember that you can always subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. And you can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. Your views are always very welcome to us, so you can mail me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or you can always find me on Twitter. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening. <laughs>